You're listening to The Multiplier Effect, an Endeavor podcast production. Operating across 41 markets in 65 cities, Endeavor is the leading global community of, by, and for entrepreneurs leading high-growth companies. You're listening to Founder to Founder, a series dedicated to, you guessed it, conversations between founders on topics that matter most to them. You know, before we had a built-out people function, like I didn't have enough bandwidth or know-how of how we can actually do this systematically. And now we're starting to get to that point of like, okay, how are we going to just take messages that are really important and just move them down through the organization so that every layer of manager understands what's expected and understands how to communicate that down to the next level. It, just, it takes a lot of rigor. It takes time. It takes resource to do that really well, uh, where, you know, three years ago, you could just do it informally. These things would just spread. I'm Jason Wink, founder and CEO of Altruist, and I'll be your host for this episode. With me is David Rabi, founder and CEO of Tavala. David, welcome and thanks for being here. Let's start by talking a little bit about what Tavala is for those who don't know. Thanks for having me, Jason. This is an exciting opportunity. Uh, Tavala is a combined smart oven and chef prepared meal service. So almost imagine a meal kit and a microwave meal got married and you only took the best parts of both of them, that's Tavala. So you buy our oven, it sits on your countertop, you subscribe to our meals, we send you the food. It arrives mostly raw, but you actually only do about 30 to 60 seconds of work. Put your food in the oven, scan a QR code, the oven downloads the cooking instructions from the cloud, cooks your meal to our exact chef specifications in about 15 to 20 minutes, and then voila, you've got a restaurant quality meal and you did almost no work and, and there's no cleanup. So that's who we are. We've been in market for just over five years and uh, have had quite the journey to talk about. It's awesome. I should admit for full disclosure that I'm a big fan of uh, both you as an entrepreneur, your company and your product, huge fan. Um, maybe just a little bit more history. I mean, talk a little about the growth. So five years in, but you know, kind of what's that five year been like in terms of the growth, in terms of the pace, you know, kind of how rapid the growth occurred and then, you know, total size in terms of the team, um, kind of how that's matured over the last few years. Yeah, so we launched in the summer of 2017, and we felt like we were building something so innovative that if we built it, they would come. And so we launched this product, and we sold a ton of units in our first two days, and then we didn't sell a lot for a long time. And we were we were kind of racking our brains. It's like, people love this thing. Our retention is amazing. Our IPS is so high. Everyone that worked at the company was a huge power user, and it was changing our lives. And but we could not translate that into new customer adoption. And so it was call it about a two year journey from launch to what we defined as finding product market fit, which happened in August ish, August, September of 2019. And so fortunately, we had a lot of positive things happening in those two years that helped keep us alive, helped motivate the team. We grew just not at the pace we wanted. And then a combination of some changes to our pricing strategy and changes to our brand positioning and the business just took off and uh, we we tripled in size from September of 19 until the end of 2019. We, we grew more in those four months that had grown in our first two years and, and then some. Um, and really since then, we've just continued at, at that pretty rapid pace of growth. And it's an entirely new chapter. You know, there was a, I'd say a long stretch of growth and everything breaking. And then I'd say in the last year, year and a half, it's been, all right, how do we actually 
manage a more scaled organization. Um, and we have a, a pretty large team because we also produce all of our own food. So we, we run our own food facilities uh, across two states in the U.S., employ all of our own people in those facilities, make all the food ourselves. That's a reason why the quality is so high. Um, and so we've had to scale the operational side of the house while also scaling the corporate team to support a much, much larger business. That's awesome. Well, I mean, per perfect uh, intro because I think today we'll be talking a lot about managing that growth, especially kind of the, the hyper growth and the changes organizationally. So kind of digging in, I think one problem that we face as entrepreneurs and we hit the growth stage is that kind of early stage where to your point, you had like, it sounds like a family type atmosphere. Everyone was a huge fan of the product. Um, you know, maybe that's even a big part of what drew them there. Um, you know, super happy, loyal customers. And so that feeling is awesome. But once you hit kind of really rapid growth, um, that feeling gets more difficult. So just curious from your own experience, you know, how critical is it for you to build a strong company culture from the very beginning? And then, you know, how did you make sure you scaled that uh, with the values and camaraderie from early dates to, you know, maybe that post late 2019 and beyond phase? Yeah, it's a great question. And I, I wish I had all the answers. Uh, I, I will say that from the beginning, we, we tried to think really hard about culture and the types of people we were recruiting, the types of behaviors we were incentivizing, the types of behaviors we were disincentivizing. And so, it, you know, I'd like to think it was not an afterthought for us. And you know, we didn't pick up our heads one day and, and say, oh, my God, we need to think about company culture. It was it was true from day one. And we never thought company culture was ping pong tables and happy hours. It, it was really about behaviors and how we treat each other, how we work together, um, and, you know, how we work as a, as a group. And, you know, definitely there is a difference, I'd say, in the, the first 15, 20, 25 people that work here and and people that came after. And, and there's some overlap, certainly, but I think there's something about the early group of people that helped start our company. And I think this is true of most startups. Like you innately will have a deeper sense of ownership when you're one of the people that helped get the business off the ground versus someone that comes to play a role when the business is more in that scale up phase. Um, I think that transition is really hard and it was really hard for us. And I think it was magnified because much of it happened during COVID. And so, you know, we, we found that hyper growth about six months before COVID. And in that six month period, everything was breaking. And so it was all hands on deck for a long period of time. We didn't even have HR to hire anyone. And so we were trying to hire people to support the growth and that was slow and painful. Um, and you're growing while still trying to like try to build the foundation so that it doesn't feel even more painful a year from now. And then once things stabilized and we started hiring people, that was kind of the heart of COVID. And it was, a, it was a big transition for us of everyone in the office together, an office small enough where everyone could see each other who now were, were separated and remote as a corporate team, but then in the facilities uh, as an operations team. And so there were just a lot of challenges to work through. And one of the things we tried to do to improve it is actually document values. Like we had not done that early on, uh, which actually worked fine for us. I think there was just like, a set of accepted principles that we talked about a lot, but were never kind of put on paper, put on the walls. We did that in probably Q3, Q4 of 2020. And I think that helped to some degree to elevate what we felt like were the important principles and values. Um, but I think we also got a fair amount wrong. Like, you know, the, the hiring became a lot faster. And so we, we couldn't be as thorough of who we were bringing in the door and, and vetting them. And um, teams started to form their own cultures uh, and I'd say in the last six months, nine months, like we've done a much better job of trying to bring kind of 
uniform culture across each team, uniform accountability, uniform expectation setting, understanding of what are the values of the business. And we're now actually going through a values refresh and, and doing it in a way that's engaging people that have been here for seven years and engaging people that have been here for three months and creating a set of values that we feel are an evolution of what we put on paper two and a half years ago, but are, are actually meant to meet the company where it is today and where we want it to be in two, three, four years. So kind of a long-winded answer, but I'd say it's, it's a really complicated, challenging problem. And I think every company has its own dynamic set of challenges around culture. And you know, ours is unique in that you know, pre-COVID, post-COVID, during COVID, and a corporate and in-person workforce, um, just it was hard. It was hard. Yeah, I can imagine. I was thinking about that with, uh, you know, you're basically, you're both a software company, a hardware company, uh, direct consumer distribution network, you know, you have uh, food processing. I mean, there, there's, a, there's a lot of things where, uh, you know, a pure software company, COVID happened, maybe didn't change a lot. Uh, but that juggling act is, is, is pretty impressive and, and I'm sure super challenging. So uh, yeah, I can only imagine. Yeah, it's, it's super hard managing all the different businesses. That's part of what makes the product, product so magical is those different disciplines working together. It's part of our moat. It is a really complex business to run and operate, but it also brings on a whole set of pretty unique challenges um, that are hard. Like we, we need to be so cross-disciplinary and there's so much overlap from you know menu to engineering to operations to product. And those teams have to learn how to speak each other's languages well enough that they can work together and work quickly together. And it gets harder the more people you add to the mix. You know, when it's each team is one person, it's much easier than when each team is five or 10 people and they're forced to work together. And we're trying to push the same pace we had in our early days. And it's much harder now when, when there's just more people. Yeah. Well, let's kind of dig into a little bit about that, you know, uh, culture refresh. I think it's interesting because um, one of the things I think that it doesn't get discussed enough, my, my business has this challenge because we're, we're sort of a B2B2C company. And so, you know, there's a consumer message, there's the B2B message, and then there's the internal message, right? Um, and I think that gets kind of missed a lot as sort of the internal brand, what you're doing to make yourself a great place to work, a place that grows and nurtures people, um, but then having this really desirable, and obviously I know only the consumer facing part of your product. I think it's beautifully designed. The hardware is beautiful. They're easy to use um, software. So you're, you're crushing it externally. How do you merge those things, right? To where you're, you're, you're building that same strong brand connection with your people as you do with your end customer. Yeah, I, I struggled with this for a while. I think I, I am not a kind of pound your chest kind of CEO that wants to be out there a lot. And I, felt that was that should be the case with our employer brand too and we hired a chief people officer just over a year ago that really questioned my thinking on that in a in a good way and she's like listen we do all these great things for our team here we should share that like we should attract more people as a result of it and it it's not bragging uh, if we're going out and sharing truth and and I was very hesitant to do that for a while I think because it's not my nature but you want one example of like we give equity to every single employee in the company, um, from a assembly worker in our facilities to to you know anyone at corporate. And I really did not want to share that publicly for a while because we we did that because we felt like it was the right thing to do, and not because we wanted press around it. And enough time had passed where it was like, no, that is just core to who we are as an organization. Like we should share that because that matters to people that are thinking about joining Tavala, and it is a part of our values. And, and so I think I've personally gotten more comfortable with sharing some of the things that make our culture unique 
in order to attract really strong talent. But what we always found is once people came in the door and started interviewing, they got a really good sense of our culture. And that was a big part of what sold people to join. Um, and so now it's, you know, how do we broadcast that out you know, more broadly? And then I think when we think about internally, what has changed over the last couple of years is culture for a while was just tribal. Like there were not that many people here. And so it could flow pretty organically of like, here's how things are done. Here's how we work together. Here's what's okay. Here's, here's what's not okay. And then as we've gotten bigger, that just doesn't work anymore. And so more of it has to be really thoughtfully embedded throughout the organization, um, whether it's names of rooms, including it on your performance reviews, including it in company, all hands, like just a lot of places where we try to sprinkle the values so that they, they really get embedded and everyone understands like, this is what it means to operate at Tavala. Um, and we're on that journey now. Like we are far from where I think we, we want to be. And, and this refresh is a, is a part of kind of rethinking that. It's awesome. Yeah. So I should, I should clarify too, for, for all the global endeavor entrepreneurs listening, uh, David's company is a Midwest United States company. Uh, there's a cliche around the country, but it's, 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 I think quite accurate, but they call it Midwest. Nice. Um, I think that humbleness sometimes makes it hard to do the pound your chest. Hey, look how great of a place we are to work. Um, uh, and I think that's actually, um, yeah, I suspect common in other parts of the world as well, where just culturally, you know, we're pretty humble. Uh, and and that you, don't, you don't want to ever make that a disadvantage when recruiting amazing people. So uh, glad, glad to hear that you're, you know, kind of vocalizing it a bit more and, and telling the world, you know, and locally, you know, how, how great a company it is. Um, so, so one of the things I want to kind of click in a bit deeper, you, know, you mentioned a second ago or a minute ago, um, about how, as the company grows, like there's almost, uh, sounds like, um, culture created in, I don't want to call them silos, but like, you know, specific teams are kind of creating their own micro cultures within the organization. Um, and sometimes that, that can be a really wonderful, beautiful thing, but you know, uh, it, it can be hard when you're the CEO, you're the founder, you, you've got these broad responsibilities. You can't oversee or manage every single person um, on your team, you know, you start building layers of management and those managers have their own individual leadership styles. So, you know, how can you build, you know, as an entrepreneur teams that complement each other that still feel aligned with one universal value system while still really respecting that there's, you know, these unique, again, kind of microcultures being created, um, especially if they're really positive ones, like how can you then multiply those, I guess, across the organization? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And I don't, I don't think we're best in class at this by any means. This is one of the reasons we're doing the refresh is the values that we set up a few years ago, they didn't apply uniformly across every team. And so for some teams, there were a couple values that didn't resonate. And for other teams, those values were the best values we had. And so inevitably that created tension between teams because as an organization, we're saying, hey, these are the important things, but for some teams that that wasn't right. And, and so I think that's where you have to start in some ways. And that's where we have with this refresh of like, what are values that we think can actually speak to every single person in the organization, every single team, then everyone can live the same set of values, understand this is what is important here, understand what they're being held accountable to, and then we can cascade that down. And so it needs to start at the very top. The whole executive team has to live and breathe every value, deeply believe in it, and then have a set of shared principles around how those are managed with their teams, how those are communicated down and on and on. And then what is the next layer underneath them that also gets that deep understanding and instruction and then keep moving it forward. And so, you know, before we had a built out people function, like I didn't have enough bandwidth or know how of how we can actually do this systematically. 
And now we're starting to get to that point of like, okay, how are we going to just take messages that are really important and just move them down through the organization so that every layer of manager understands what's expected and understands how to communicate that down to the next level. It, just, it takes a lot of rigor. It takes time. It takes resource to do that really well. Uh, where, you know, three years ago, you could just do it informally. These things would just spread. It's not true anymore. Well, a very quick question, but I'm just more of a personal curiosity. But at what point you said you, you've added this um, chief people officer, you built out a people function. Where was the company when you started that process of building out the people function and then adding in that you know senior um, C-suite leader uh, in terms of headcount? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I was telling someone this the other day that I feel like one of what I would join these CEO summits early on in my journey, one of the common questions that gets asked is, what hire do you wish you had made earlier? And this is of later stage CEOs. And I swear the most common one was a head of people or, or sometimes people would say head of HR. And, and I ignored that advice foolishly. Um, and so I, I wish we had hired our chief people officer probably three years earlier. Um, even though it's a hard hire to make, obviously cost money there, you know, and, and not so clearly tied to performance on the PL. To me, if you don't have like very strong cultural values and like someone constantly thinking about that. Um, and that's obviously the CEO's job, but having a partner to really like focus on it a hundred percent of the time, I think just improves how you operate as a company and ultimately flows into the PL. So I'll answer your question in a sec, but I think my point is like, I wish I had made that hire much sooner. Uh, so we, we hired Natalie uh, almost a year ago now. So it was Q4 of 2021. We had probably about 300 employees-ish, I'd say 250 to 300. Corporate team was probably around 100. Um, business was like approaching nine-figure run rate. So pretty, you know, we were fairly large, I would say. We had some people on HR, um, but we did not have a strategic people function. And so, uh, yeah, I wish I had made that higher much sooner. Like, then maybe thinking about it from a fundraise standpoint, like we were Series C funded at the time, like between A to B. Like, I think as soon as you find product market fit, like you should make that higher. That's great feedback. Yeah, I think um, uh, not, not uncommon. Too- yeah, and not, not uncommon. Uh, you know, again, the, in hindsight, I should have, you know, but uh, um, couldn't agree more. We, we have a shout out to all the incredible people leaders out there. Um, ours, Catherine, uh, fantastic. And um, yeah, I think uh, I've seen a number of uh, flywheels, you know, ever since Good to Great uh, came out. And oftentimes at the center of those flywheels is culture and engagement, you know, of your team. And uh, so, mm-hmm. you know, if you can't drive that engagement and culture, it's hard to get the best uh, results. So uh, I want to shift to you. One of the things, again, like you're, you're, I feel like you're like lobbing me up, like great lead-ins to questions, but you've talked about, again, some of the change that you're going through, um, updating, you know, your um, values, kind of modernizing them. Um, and one of the things that is very difficult as a, as a leader um, is change because people are very resistant to this. And, you know, some studies show that just instinctively people oppose change initiatives because they disrupt established power structures and established ways of getting things done. And so it could be the most obviously good change in the world. And there'll be people who are just like, ah, no, I like the old way. Right. So I want just curious like, if you've seen this, um, you know, and, and curious like, how you've thought about, um, you know, any of that resistance to change, whether it's this cultural you know, values, update, refresh, or just other changes that undoubtedly you've had to uh, implement in order to go from, again, early small team to now a multiple hundreds of people and, you know, significant business. Yeah, I, we've definitely faced this in a lot of different parts of the organization. I think for a lot of people, 
changing from a small company to a late stage growth company where we're not a big company by any means, but we're not a small startup anymore is hard. Uh, and a lot of things change about how we have to operate, the amount of autonomy people have, the kind of work people are doing. And for some people that change is well received and uh, it's part of what drives them and fuels them. And for other people, it's not right. You know, for some people like the early stage is where they are best. And uh, just accepting that often is hard, um, especially for folks that you know, have been here for a long time and have scaled, you know, been, been with the organization as it's scaled, like that's, it's a pretty cool experience. But uh, for some people, they're, they're better suited at the early stage. For other people, they're better suited at the late stage. And um, that has nothing to do with people's talents or anything like that. So certainly that's an area we've, we've faced some challenge and we try to name it as, as one thing and, and normalize it uh, as a way to make it easier for folks. Another area is, you know, when we have certain processes or certain things that for some reason or another, people hold sacrosanct. And I, I try to like, reinforce the message that nothing is sacrosanct here. Most things that came to be probably came to be for a silly reason. Uh, and, you know, if you just joined in the last six months, you shouldn't assume that there was months of thought and data and insight put into certain things that are true. Like it's possible one person made that decision in 30 seconds because of the circumstances three years ago. And so that's a message I actually try to repeat a lot. We had a, an AMA yesterday with the company and I brought that up as, as I think one of the biggest mistakes we've made in the history of the company is not actually rethinking uh, our price earlier. Uh, if we had done that, it would have changed a lot of things. And my my message was, you should never say like, we're doing this because we've always done it this way. Like that, those words should not come out of anyone's mouth here. Um, anything should be considered game for change and, and reconsidering. And I think that has to be true for a startup that is scaling and trying to grow. Um, because we're so far away from being a stable, steady state, mature company that's growing 10% year over year. Like we have to be rethinking what we're doing on a regular basis and people have to be comfortable with that. Um, but that's hard. And that's why to me, it's like one of the messages I have to keep harping on. Yeah. I mean, I, I love the self-awareness there. I think, um, uh, to me, uh, when you have that first employee who leaves and they say it's because you're getting too corporate, um, you know, it's probably means you're moving in one of those evolutionary stages of business. And, and, and that may mean that some people, uh, are no longer a fit. Um, and that's okay for them. And it's also okay for the business and nobody should feel like they, you know, things have to stay the same for you know, decades. If that happened, I think most businesses would, would stall out. So, uh, change should be embraced communicating it though. Yeah. Super challenging, you know? Um, so, so speaking of, you know, kind of, of, communication, uh, and, and other challenges along those lines. Um, uh, one thing I found is a lot of the early people, you know, I started my company in late 2018. It's so not long after yours. Um, so I'm getting some of my first early leaders, you know, they're coming up on their four year mark with the company. And, you know, I think a lot of those people who joined me early, part of why they joined is they wanted to have like real proximity to a founder at the very earliest stage, you know, and I think a lot of ways because they were entrepreneurial themselves. Um, and, you know, curious when you think about like, you know, your job, one of the things that you have to do is to train and develop people who may want to be in a role like yours one day. And how do you manage that in terms of, you know, um, helping, uh, develop your own senior leaders, um, kind of get them from delegators to coaches, uh, knowing that in some cases your absolute best people, um, uh, are entrepreneurial and, and perhaps one day they'll be off, um, you know, starting their own venture. 
Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I have always said nothing would make me happier than people leaving Tavala to start their own companies. And we have not seen that exodus yet, but I do hope that one day that actually does happen. And we have a lot of companies that are born out of people that had great experience here and learned from all the mistakes and went and started hopefully much bigger companies. I think for the really entrepreneurial people that um, have stayed with the company and, and evolved, it's about giving them continued autonomy and challenge and growth in their role so that they feel like the role continues to be entrepreneurial. Um, and in some ways, this comes back to the last question of like, for some people, they can evolve towards that and the organization can evolve with them. And for others, it can't. Um, and that's been true in our experience. Like we have some people that uh, have been here since the beginning that have continued to evolve with the organization and and some that haven't. Um, and, and same on the leadership track. We also have people that are hugely valuable to the company, but not people managers. They don't want to be people managers. They're not good at people management, but they're great for, for Tabala and they're really happy here. And so we've tried to create tracks for those folks as well that maybe more traditionally would have become managers and sat in a lot of meetings, but are actually like just very strong technical contributors uh, in different functions a- across the team. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how we thought about it. That's great. Yeah. I think, uh, by the way, I think, I, I hope every founder says that very thing, by the way, which is that, you know, the proudest moment is when people go on to go start new things and, and hopefully really successful big things. Um, I think the way I've always framed it is I, I, I hope that people are inspired just enough to go do something 10 times greater than anything they ever, you know, we ever did at my own companies. And, and, and truly, um, when you mean that, uh, yeah, I think attract and retain and, and develop really great people. So that's awesome. Um, I want to just do uh, one more last question. I figure I might as well, you know, give you a really hard one for last. It's one that whenever it comes up to me, I just, I, I, I start, I first, I cringe, then I beat around the bush. So see if you can be more direct than I am, but, um, you know, as we're recording this, you know, there's a, there's a the fair number of large companies making people return back to an office to work. I'm curious, you know, your view on remote work, how it's working for Tavala kind of, you know, if you had to guess five years from now, what's the you know most effective workplace going to look like, um, and uh, in general, like if you if you've already experimented with this, maybe just share any of those experiments too. Um, in terms of you know, uh, obviously you have certain people that have to be physically on site, but not everybody. Like managing just that is actually really hard. The fact that some people can, some people can't. So anyway, just really wanted to kind of pick your brain just a little bit about this remote work and kind of post-COVID world and where you see the future of hybrid and in-person and virtual work? Yeah. Um, we definitely have, I'd say, a more challenging situation than companies that are in one of the two camps of they can be fully remote or they can't be. We're in the middle, um, which makes it hard. Uh, and so just managing that dynamic alone has taken a fair amount of brain space. And I think we still have work to do just to ensure that, you know, both kind of sets of, of people here feel equitably treated uh, and that we're creating policies and things of that nature that are fair and equitable for everyone. So that is an ongoing challenge. Uh, the way we've managed at least the corporate team is we are pretty hybrid uh, and I'd say quite flexible. So, you know, we encourage people to come in one day a week to have lunch together and gather as a group. But I use the word encourage pretty deliberately. Like it is far from a mandate. Um, it's, it's more of a social thing that we want people to spend time with their peers, but not a requirement. Um, and then each team is empowered to gather on their own. So if they feel like it's best for their team that they should be in the office together, 
one day a week or one day a month, like that's on them to figure out what is best. Uh, and then we tr we're trying to do more regular offsites, I would say, for each department, you know, for smaller units, sometimes for cross-functional kickoff meetings we'll do in person. So I think we're trying to find the right balance of when do we fly people in? What is the cadence of that? Who, who are in those groups that are meeting in person? Um, but otherwise, I'd say generally our, our company has adapted pretty well. And, you know, I think certainly some of the cultural challenges are a result of us not being together in a room every single day. Like there are a thousand percent things that are lost as a result, but there's a lot gained. We've been able to recruit awesome talent that is not based in Chicago. Um, people have more flexibility to travel. Uh, they have more flexibility. Like, you know, we have two young kids at home, like being able to work from home on occasion is just much more conducive to me being a, a present dad. Um, and so I don't, I don't see us changing how we're operating and it's, it's continued to work for us. But what I will say is I was going to go start a new company. Like I would be highly biased towards doing it in person unless it was all people that I'd worked with for a really long time before. Uh, I think getting something off the ground and forming those early bonds and the early culture and wading through the morass of finding product market fit, my bias would be that'd be very hard to do purely remotely un unless you were really experienced with the people you're working with. Yeah, that's uh, very thoughtful, I'll say. And it's and it's hard as a founder, I think. Um, I know personally I've waffled back and forth many times about, you know, could we or should we be one way or the other? Um, it, just as a maybe not looking at your business, but, you know, if you had to guess again five years from now, the best performing companies from 2022 to 27 how are they going to work? Do you think, uh, you know, again, you mentioned how you would do it if you had to start all over again, but like, what are the best performing companies going to be looking like? I, I think they will have to be hybrid. I just think the demand from the best people will be for the ability to work remotely. And so I think you'll just miss on talent is the truth. Um, so you'd have to make up for it probably in terms of connection and culture within an organization because you're working in person together all the time. But if we zoom out, my guess would be like, the majority of the companies that are doing best are hybrid. Well said. Awesome. Well, thanks so much again for joining us, David. Um, this has been a lot of fun. You know, I don't oftentimes get to play host, but I'm Jason Wink, uh, host of Endeavor's Multiplier Effect. Uh, thanks so much for being on and wishing us but the, the best and continued success. Um, uh, huge, huge fan again. And, and thank you so much for this time. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was great.